Uh, so here's where I want to start uh, where we're going today. So every once in a while, you will hear someone say something along this idea of you got to try something because it will change your life. And so for instance, yeah, here's, you could, you got to get an air fryer. Woo! You get it, I got it, will change your life. Uh, or sometimes people will say, man, you got to watch this. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that documentary yet. I don't know if you've seen that show, but like, let me tell you, you got to take time to watch it because it will change your life. Uh, or maybe they'll say, you got to read this. Have you read this blog yet? Have you read this book? Like, I tell you, the insight you will learn, it will change your life. Uh, or I heard a TED Talk once a few years ago, and a guy made a plea that you need to wake up at 3 a.m., that the secret to a full, you know, amazing life is that if you start your day at 3 a.m., then it will absolutely change your life. And some of you can give that uh, a try. And I hear that kind of stuff, and I, I'm really drawn to it because of, of this idea of change. Is that, go, 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 go back a few, uh, Pam. Is it on a timer or something? That's weird. All right, we'll have to see how that goes. See if you can get that off. <laughs> uh, so I like that idea because I like this idea of change your life. Because there's a part of me, I'm guessing there's a part of you, that would desperately love my life to be changed. Uh, I, some of you have good lives. Some of you feel like you have kind of stressful, really disappointing lives. Some of you feel like you have a great life. But I think there's a lot of us who have this feeling that like there's something more. Like there's some level of like contentment, of joy, of like there's, there's a way in which you could live your life that somehow I'm missing out on. It seems like other people have it and I'm missing out. And if I could just maybe, if I could read that, if I could watch that, maybe if I started waking up at 3 a.m., then maybe I could experience that thing that they are experiencing too. And if you hang out in church world, one of those things that you will hear is that you gotta read the Bible. And let me tell you, if you want your life to be changed, what you gotta do is you gotta start reading your Bible. And so here's what happens. And maybe this has happened to you. I'm guessing it's happened to some of you. Is you've heard that message and you thought, okay, I, I'm in. I, I'm sorry, coming to church. I'm in for that idea of I want my life to be changed. So let me start reading. You know, so you dug out that Bible that you had on a shelf somewhere, dusty, you know, or maybe you went out and bought a Bible or you downloaded the app and you figure out, okay, starting tomorrow, I'm going to wake up early or I'm going to go on my lunch break. And you started, started to read your Bible. And then you got maybe a couple days, you got a couple weeks into it, and what you found is that it wasn't actually as life-changing as you were hoping it would be. In fact, what you found, maybe someone you know found, is that they started reading it, and it was actually sometimes a little bit boring. Sometimes it was a little confusing. And some of the things that you read, maybe they read, were actually a little bit disturbing. And so you put it aside and maybe there's a part of you that's like, I, I still believe that it must be life-changing for some people, but like you're just not reading it as much as you feel like you should. And I know this because in my role as a pastor, one of the things that people do is they'll sit down and sometimes I'll ask people, hey, how's it going with your, with your spiritual life? How's it going, you know, with this loving Jesus, loving each other and love the world? 
And what I found is one of the things that people feel the most guilty about sometimes, sometimes the most shame about, is they have this feeling that they should be reading the Bible a lot because it should be changing their life, but they're not really reading it that often because it was difficult to some degree. And so just so we're starting off on the same page and you don't feel like that you're like the sole, like not good Christian in the room, if, if you have ever had that feeling that you should be reading the Bible more but you're in fact not reading it all that much at all. If you've ever had that feeling, would you be brave enough to raise your hand just so we all know? I told you, you guys are around of a bunch of just people like me that miss the point sometimes. Uh, so here's what we want to talk about all that today. Is, uh, we are in a series, we're going through our essential beliefs, and what we're talking about is this idea of uh, we. Uh, because we believe that we are Christ Church Albany, and there's a group of people that are like, church isn't a building, church is a group of people. So we're talking about what do we believe? Uh, and again, we're not saying that you are necessarily a part of that we. That's something you can choose for yourself. But for those of you who said, I, okay, I'm in, I want to be a part of Christ Church Albany, what do we believe? And especially, what do we, we're talking about today, what do we believe about the Bible? And what do we believe about how we should use the Bible? Uh, so here's the main point for today if you fall asleep or your internet breaks or something like that. Uh, here's the main point today is that we do not try to follow the Bible. Christ Church Albany, that's not our goal. We do not want you to try to follow the Bible. What we do is we read the Bible to help us follow Jesus. Don't try to follow the Bible we follow Jesus, and the Bible helps. Uh, and I want to say that up front because now I want to go into a few things that, because that might sound like a small distinction, but I think when it comes to the Bible especially, probably all of our essential beliefs, there's different things that you might hear sometimes that often sound like they're the right thing, but I think that they're just a little bit off. And if you believe a little bit off about the Bible, it can actually lead you down a road that will not actually be life-changing. Uh, so here's a few of the statements that maybe you've heard before that sound right, but I would argue are just, they're close, but they're just a little bit off about the Bible. Uh, so here, here's the first one, that the Bible is our authority. What's our, who's going to tell us what to do? Well, the Bible, that, that, that's, that is our ultimate authority. Sounds right. I would argue we're talking about today is not actually right. Uh, here's another one you might have heard. I heard this one growing up a lot, is that the Bible says it, that settles it. All right, we got to figure out what we're going to do about this. You know, what about this issue? Well, let's just look at the Bible and whatever the Bible says, boom, that settles it. Good to go. Uh, sounds right. Not right. Uh, another one. Uh, I just want to know what the Bible is. Often where this comes in is someone will be discussing some sort of a topic and, and someone will be like, oh, okay, well, here's what this author says. And I saw this video and, you know, my pastor growing up and, and someone will say, okay, okay, okay. But, but I just want to know what, but what does the Bible have to say about it? And then they'll open up the Bible and try to figure out what that has to say. And that sounds like a good solution. It's not quite right. Uh, or the last one is that the Bible is the foundation of our faith. So, okay, so if you want to start this journey of becoming a Christian, then let's start with what the Bible says and let's build 
everything on top of that. And what, what is wrong with all those statements? It's not that they're like just blatantly crazy wrong. It's that those statements and many others, I'm sure, are putting a pressure and an expectation on the Bible that the Bible was never meant to fill. It's trying to make the Bible be something that God, the writers of the Bible, never intended. It's putting too much pressure on those things. And so we want to talk about today what the Bible is not, and then we'll talk about what the Bible is. Uh, so here's a couple of the things that the Bible is not. Uh, the Bible is not a moral or ethical rule book. Uh, so here's the way this works. Sometimes people will kind of see this as like, okay, I want to try to figure out how to live my life. I need to figure out what I should do and what I should not do. And so this, I guess, is some sort of like an encyclopedia or dictionary of some kind. And so I can just open it up and, I, and this will tell me what I'm supposed to do in any given situation. And that sounds right, but there's a couple big problems with that. And so for uh, instance, if you were to look at the issue of parenting, okay, I want, I'm a parent, I got two kids, I want to be, be a good dad, so what, what's the moral, ethical way to be a good parent? Uh, I might open the Bible to the book of Deuteronomy, and if I open the book of Deuteronomy, then here's what I would read. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son, anybody? Uh, was anybody ever a rebellious or stubborn son? Okay who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him. Can you imagine? This is what you do. Go to the next one. His father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. So they're going to shame this kid in front of all the town. And that sounds bad, but it gets worse. Then all of the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Right? Yeah, this is our authority. It's the foundation of our faith. Bible says it. Here's another one. Uh, sometimes people ask about the idea of marriage. Uh, and actually, you hear a lot these days about like, oh, we just need to get back to like a biblical view of marriage. You know, like we just need to get back to what the Bible has to say about marriage. Uh, yeah, just keep skipping on me. Okay, here we go. Yes, this is Solomon, wisest man who ever lived, had 700 wives. You're crazy. Uh, here's the last one. Slavery. What should we do? What's the moral, ethical thing to do about slavery? Well, I mean, let's look at our guide, right? Let's look at the ethical, moral guide for our faith. And here's what it says. Uh, it's the book of Leviticus. It says, you're male and female slaves. But you're going to have them, of course. Everyone assumes. Well, they are to come from the nations around you. From them, you may buy slaves. Again, I think it gets worse. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you you and your members of their clans, born in your country, and they will become your property. And is that the moral, ethical guide that we want to live under? Or is it possible that why that was written four or 5,000 years ago 
was written to a certain group of people and that maybe it was not meant to be a moral, ethical guide rule book for all places and all times, at least those rules. Uh, here's uh, another one that the Bible is not. Uh, the Bible is not a science or history book. Uh, and so a couple examples of these, there's a bunch of them. Uh, one good example is about 400 years ago, there was a guy named Galileo. You might have heard of Galileo. Uh, and Galileo, along with some other smart scientists, uh, the thought back then was that like, okay, it feels like this is pretty solid, the earth, and we see like the sun up there moving. And so the earth must be steady. And I guess the sun and, and, and the sun and everything else, that must be moving. But Galileo and some other smart folks started thinking, you know, I, I think the sun might actually be set and maybe the earth is the thing that's actually moving. And Galileo got a lot of really bad abuse from the church. Because they were saying that, well, what you're saying goes against, the Bible has a scientific view of what is happening, and you are going against what the Bible says. Here's uh, the verse that they would use. It says in Psalms, He, God, set the earth on its foundations, and it can never be moved. And so, I mean, it's obvious. That's what the Bible says, is that, I mean, the earth, it's set on a foundation. The earth can't be moved. Again, maybe what the writer of this Psalms, uh, David and many others, maybe what he was trying to do wasn't a scientific thing. They had a theological agenda. Not. He was trying to say something that he thought was very true about who God was, but it was a theological truth. He wasn't trying to say, he had no idea about like what, what holds up the earth. And that wasn't, maybe he was trying to do something very different. Uh, here's Another one, and again, I said there's a whole bunch of these that you can use as examples. And if you, especially uh, if you read a lot of books, like from there's a group called the New Atheist. Uh, so Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and some of those uh, fellows, uh, and they just cite a whole bunch of these as reasons of why our whole faith needs to be dismissed because of just kind of the, the holes that they're trying to punch in this. And so here's another one, that's an easy one. When did Jesus clear the temple? You know, uh, there's a Jesus had a three-year ministry, and so people wonder, okay, when did Jesus do these things? And here's the problem, is that there's four different accounts of the life of Jesus. And so in one of them, John, he puts it, it's kind of like one of the first things that Jesus did. So Jesus turned water into wine, and then he's going right to the temple, and he's throwing people out. Kind of first thing, you know, first part, yeah, this is like his, like, hello ceremony. Matthew, on the other hand, he puts it very late. He put the last week of Jesus' life. This is like one of the last things that Jesus did. And so people ask, well, which one was it? Was it early? Was it late? Maybe it was a both. And again, maybe with John and Matthew, they didn't, they didn't have a historical or scientific agenda. They had a theological agenda. And this is tough for us as like Western Americans sometimes because we have a way in which we view history. But to John and Matthew, who were good Jewish boys, they told history in a Jewish way. And the idea of lining up the events in perfect chronological order would not have been important to them, even though it would be important to us. What they're trying to do is they have something they're trying to communicate. And so it was very okay, very Jewish, to be able to move around historical events so that you can better tell the story. And that's different for us, but it's, it's, it's just a different, because they had a theological agenda, not a historical one. Uh, and then 
Uh, last uh, example, and I think this is super fun. So there's a bunch of these in the Bible. So there's a guy named Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebecca. Kind of a, a cool thing, huh? Uh, here's another one. The Lord your God led you in the wilderness these days for 40 years. So there were people of Israel were 40 years. Isn't that kind of a cool coincidence? Uh, here's another one. I, Joshua, was 40 years old when he, Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me. So when, when Moses sent me, he was 40 years old. just happened to be that age. Uh, here's another one. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. Remarkable. Very cool. 40 years. Uh, here's a uh, last one. David was 30 years old when he became king, but he reigned for 40 years. And so obviously one idea, and this idea of just doing like, do a Google search sometime of Google 40 in the Bible, and there's a bunch of other numbers that you could choose too. But maybe it was just an amazing coincidence that all these people happened to get married and meet their people and at 40 years. Or maybe to the Jewish mind 4,000, 5,000 years ago, the way in which they wrote things and told history, maybe 40 meant something different to them than it means to us. Maybe 40 doesn't mean 40 actual years. Maybe 40 had a bigger concept, a bigger idea. And then there's other numbers and dates that you could go through where just the way in which they viewed history and telling a story was different than we do. And, be, and here's, here's why. Because the Bible was written by real people in real places a very long time ago. These were real people who wrote the Bible down. We believe inspired by God. The real people. And they were writing them to real places. And it was a very long time ago. So they were writing it in their world with what their world, how they viewed history at that point, their world of which they viewed science at that point. They used their literary devices of how they were going to write these things. And they did it all. And sometimes as Western world, we look at it like they, they got history wrong. They got science wrong. But yeah, they did. But that's really not a problem for those of us who want to read the Bible. Because they, didn't ha they had a theological agenda. They did not have a historical or scientific agenda. And that's a huge, huge deal. Uh, now, here's uh, where we want to go next with this, is this little word here, agenda. Because overall, when you look at the Bible, the Bible is not actually a book. We talked about that before. The, uh, the Bible is 66 different books written by real people in real places. But even though it's 66 different books written over the span of about 1,500 years, it has a story. It has an agenda. It has a direction. It has a place that it is trying to take you. And if you don't understand where it's trying to take you, you really can't understand it. And so here's how I'll describe that. Uh, and you remember this movie from like uh, 20 years ago or so, uh, The Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis. And ever seen that? Anybody not seen it? Am I going to ruin it for anybody? All right. Uh, so it's one of those movies where it's got like a big surprise at the end, okay? It's like a big, like, I did not see that coming. But once you see the whole movie and once you see the ending, it really changes everything. And if you ever go back and watch The Sixth Sense again, when you know what this big surprise at the end is, it really changes the whole rest of the movie for you. It's like you see stuff that you never saw the first time once you know the ending. And maybe more so, if you were to watch all of the movie The Sixth Sense, but you just turned it off for whatever reason with 10 minutes left to go, and you never saw that ending, then you, would, you might have a great understanding of the movie, 
Uh, maybe you get, would get real into it. Maybe you memorized, you know, uh, quotes and you knew the actors, you knew the background. But if you never saw that last 10 minutes, you would never really understand what the movie was actually all about. And this is what we believe about the Bible, is that there's a part near the end of the Bible that actually is the explanation for all the rest. And once you understand that, it changes and reshapes everything else. Uh, and here's why we believe that. Uh, this is uh, Jesus talking. Uh, Jesus talking to a group of religious leaders. These are people that are very religious, very well knew the Scriptures. The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. And we talked about this a few weeks. This is, there's just so many reasons why they would get ticked off at Jesus and why they ultimately killed Jesus. Because that's, that's a heck of a statement to say. <laughs> that my Father sent me. I am the Messiah, he's saying. The Father has sent me and has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice. It's, try to picture This is some of the most religious people on the planet at this point. These are people that Jesus is talking to that studied the Bible. I mean, they were in the temple constantly. And he's telling them, you know, God, you guys have never actually heard his voice. You missed it. Nor have you seen his form. You haven't seen him. Nor does his word dwell in you. And here's why. For you do not believe the one he sent. And you study the scriptures diligently. Because you think that in them, you will have eternal life. You guys, have, you guys have memorized these. You have studied. You have been studying the Bible. And you think that if I, where we started at the beginning, what they believe is that you got to read this because if you read this, this is going to change your life. And Jesus is saying, you've been reading them, thinking it was going to change your life, and it hasn't, has it? Before we go on, anybody know anybody like that? or maybe know any groups like that, where they're, they're very religious. I mean, they, they, they went to church all the time. They meet every Sunday. They sing the right songs. They study the Scriptures. But you just, as you see the fruit of their lives, there's something that's like, I think you've missed it. Like you're reading the Bible. You know it a lot. But you seem like you haven't quite had your life changed yet. You're missing something. And here's what Jesus would say that you missed. There you go. You've got to read the Bible. It will change your life. It didn't work. These are the very same scriptures. These scriptures that you've been reading diligently and you've been missing it. Here's what you've been missing. They testify about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me to have... Jesus is saying, here's the secret if you want to have your life changed. Me. You don't have me, you're not going to have your life change. And if you're reading the Bible and you don't get what I did, you're going to miss it all. Uh, here's uh, another example. Uh, so this is, uh, I think this is kind of cool. This is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So Jesus crucified, three days he was dead, and now some people have just went to the tomb, he wasn't there, it was really weird, they're trying to figure this whole thing out, and this is the same day. Now, that same day, two of them, we're going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they're walking down this road. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. They'd, some crazy stuff had happened in Jerusalem the last few days, seven days or so, all this crazy stuff. 
as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself, who just rose from the dead, they had seen him killed. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, but they were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus is playing some games here, which I think is I don't know, interesting, I think. Uh, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk? Well, what's up, guys? What are you guys talking about? Uh, and they answered. They stood. Oh, sorry, go back one. Oh, no, I guess I was right. Okay, go ahead. I'll get this. They stood still, their faces downcast. I mean, they're, they are upset. They are, this has been a really hard day for them. We're going to find out why. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened? I mean, this crucifixion of Jesus was not like a... It, everyone in Jerusalem would have seen this. I mean, this was a big, big deal. He's the only one who knows the things that have happened. There in these days, everyone saw this. Uh, it goes on. What things, Jesus asked. Again, he's toying with them. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. Again, that's big. We've talked about that before. That all through Jesus' life, people had different ideas of who Jesus was. Some people believed from the get-go he was the Messiah. A lot of other people were like, eh, like he's a good guy. He's a prophet, but we're not really sure who he is. And they believed he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. I think it's big. The chief priests and our rulers handed them over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him, which is a big problem, because we had hoped that he was the one, that he wasn't the one, because he was crucified. And maybe he was going to be the Messiah, but Messiahs can't be, crucif- Messiahs can't be killed. Sons of guys can't be killed. We thought maybe he was the one who was going to save us. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but they didn't find his body. Again, something we don't have time for today, but it's a cool thing when you look at these stories is that no one was expecting a resurrection. Uh, no one was going to say, he, he obviously rose from the dead, just like he said he was going to do. They're like, I don't know. They went to the tomb. He wasn't there. This is weird. We don't, we don't understand what happened here. Uh, but now Jesus is going to spoke. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive, but then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Again, they were just so confused by all this. Uh, And now Jesus is going to speak. He said to them, Jesus, how foolish you guys are, which sounds, it was more endearing than that. It wasn't as harsh as that sounds. You say, hi. You guys don't understand, do you? You, you? You've missed something here. And how slow you are to believe all that the prophets, which is a whole huge like section of what they would call the, just their, their Bible at that point, the prophets, have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? To which they would have said, no. No one has ever read these scriptures and thought, Messiah is going to come, and then he's going to be crucified, and he's going to have to suffer. No one had that idea. Complete surprise, different take on the whole thing. Uh, And Jesus went on. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so that's a way of saying he went through basically all their Old Testament scriptures. Uh, They believe that the first couple books of the Bible uh, were called the Pentateuch, written by Moses. Uh, The rest they called the prophets. Jesus went through the scriptures. And he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. She said, yeah, all right, here's what you guys missed. Let's, let's go back through this, okay? Let's, let's look here, okay? See, see what Moses said here? 
yeah, that, that was actually about me. That was leading to me. Yeah, this thing that happened here, and you guys, you know, you guys have had a, a take on it, you know, for all these years. Yeah, what that actually was, that was actually leading to me. And Jesus made this kind of crazy big statement that all the Bible is to be understood, is to be read, is to be gone through the lens of him. Which again, would have been such a crazy big idea, big, big thing. But those guys on that street that day and the early disciples, here's what they would have said. And here's what we want us to believe. Uh, they would have looked at a statement like this. Uh, sorry, so we, we, if we don't uh, follow the Bible as I go to the next one. They would look at a statement like this. The Bible is our authority. Scripture is our authority. And they'd be like, no, no, no. You, you can actually read the Bible and miss the point. Uh, uh, the, the Bible isn't our authority. Jesus is our authority. Whatever Jesus tells us to do, that's what we're going to do. And we're going to interpret everything else that the Bible says through his words, which was a thing that Jesus did constantly. Jesus was constantly, if you've been in one of our community groups, saying things like, you have heard it was said, but I say. Uh, you guys have missed the point. He, he was regularly redefining, re-clarifying, re-describing. Here's what these scriptures are actually about. Because he's saying that you can't understand these unless you understand me, because this isn't your authority. I am your authority. Uh, same. I uh, look at a statement like this. The idea is, I just want to know what the Bible has to say. Okay, well, I'm trying to figure out what I should do about this decision. What, what does the Bible say? You say, ah, that, that's close, but it's not quite right, because here's what's right. It's, I just want to know what Jesus has to say about it. Like, yeah, that's interesting that Moses said, and that's interesting that the prophet, but what does Jesus say about it? Which I think is such like, a huge, huge deal, because I think sometimes as I am explaining this, and I've like, explained it to people, there can be like a pushback of like, I see what you're trying to do, John. Like You're just trying to like rub the rough edges off the Bible and try to make it more palatable so, you know, it could be easier, you know, we just have, you know, it's like nice Woodstock Christianity when I get rid of all like the, 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 the difficult things of the Bible. And there's a part of that where it's like, yeah, there's parts that do disturb me about different parts of the Bible that I do hope, hope that Jesus has the ability to rough up, to sand off. And there's things that I hope when reinterpreted through a lens that maybe I don't understand, through my Western, you know, scientific lens, will be more palatable for sure. But if you want to wonder about how you should live your life, I promise you, if you've been one of our community groups for the last few weeks, you know this, that what Jesus has to say is oftentimes much more clear, but is oftentimes much more intense and practical and just way more extreme than what you would read in other parts. Again, Jesus was regular saying, hey, you've heard it said, don't murder. Okay, well, that's what the, but I say to you, don't even be angry. Jesus said, you have heard it said, don't even commit adultery. But I say, if you even have lust in your heart, you're, you already have an issue to figure out. Jesus, if you ask this question of what does Jesus say, it will push you to such an extreme and radical and best way to live. Uh, last one, uh, the idea that Jesus is uh, the Bible is the foundation of our faith. You'd be like, especially if it's the idea that's like, okay, 
the, the science in this book is the foundation of my faith. And so therefore, if you can throw off the science and prove that that's wrong, then I guess my whole faith is going to crumble. They, they would say, no, 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 that, that's crazy. Big deal for me. Uh, I was 17 years old. Uh, I don't know how you were when you were, when you were 17. When I was 17, I was a genius. I was so smart. I was, I was the smartest I've ever been. And so, and I, and I was a Christian. I was raised in a certain kind of church where we really talked about the idea that this book can be a historical and scientific book. And so whatever the Bible says, that's it. And so what, one of the ways in which we would read the Bible is that the creation of the world, the Bible says it happened in seven literal days. And so I boy, all right, that, that's what the Bible says. It happened in seven literal days. So 17 years old, I stood up in front of my whole biology class and I proclaimed to them that my teacher who had studied science, had his PhD in science, he was an idiot. I, as a 17-year-old, I had read the Bible and the Bible said the world was actually created in seven literal days, not millions of years like this guy is saying. I'm right, you're wrong, boom, case closed. And then I moved out here and I met this guy named Greg Downing, who's the smartest guy I've ever met. Uh, this is how I describe Greg. There are scientists all over our world right now that are doing amazing discoveries and doing things for the government especially. And when those folks have questions and they're like, I don't know what to do next, they call Greg. Uh, I have crazy stories about this guy, Greg, the scientist guy. And Greg was like, oh, yeah, no, I, I totally believe in the idea that the world could be millions of years old. You can figure out your own interpretation of what you believe. But if, if my foundation of my faith is that, okay, if the Bible says seven literal days, it has to be seven literal days. If that can be proven scientifically, then that's wrong. Then I guess, I guess all my faith is just gone because my, this scientific thing got disproven and these guys would say, no, 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 no. You don't need to worry about that. That's not the foundation of your faith. Here's the foundation of your faith. It's Jesus. And here's what we saw. We, we were there. Everyone in Jerusalem saw it. He was crucified. No two ways about it. And then I'm telling you, we were walking down a street one day, and he started walking with us. He, we didn't know who he was at first, but then he revealed himself. And I'm telling you, the foundation of our faith is that we believe that Jesus was who he said he was. He was the Son of God, and he proved it by rising from the dead, and it just changed everything. Uh, and God, all of that is just so big for me in my faith, and I hope it's big for you in your faith, and I hope it's big for us as we move forward as a church. Because I, I hope I haven't given the wrong impersonation. I, I love the Bible. I wake up every morning early, not at 3 a.m. I woke up every morning early, though, and I spend time reading the Bible. I do really, really love, I think it is a very, very helpful book. But the Bible has often been difficult for me in my life. Like, maybe it's been difficult for you in your own faith life. There's been times where it's been boring to me, where it's been confusing, and there's definitely been times where it's been disturbing. There's definitely been times where, especially I've seen other people use the Bible like it was never meant to be used. They use it as an ethical and moral book to just beat people down. And they use it as a scientific book to try to say, you know, like the whole scientific community is dumb, but we're right and kind of separate themselves or separate themselves from the historical community. And I've just seen so many times where it's been used wrongly that it just makes me be like, ah, I just, it makes this book difficult sometimes. But on the other hand, when I look at Jesus, I just, I love him. I love everything he has to say. So when I hear Jesus say something like this, it's kind of been one of our verses for the fall. Are you tired and worn out and burned out on religion? Yeah. 
I've been tired of how people have used this in a religious system way to hurt people. And when Jesus says, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life, I'll show you how to take a real rest. I'm like, ah, oh, that's... Sometimes you're just following this like in a way that's not Jesus-centered. You can live a religious life that actually just feels heavy and hard, and you feel like you've got to hate everyone else and judgmental, and it's not fun. A, a real rest. He goes on, walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace, and I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. And that's what I want. That's what I want for all of us. I want us to be followers of Jesus. And I want us to experience His way of life. But then you have to ask this question. How exactly do I learn about this Jesus and how to walk with His ways? And how do I watch Him? He's not here anymore. How do I, how do I watch Him? How do I keep company with Him? How do I learn from Him? And here's what Paul, this is what we're going to end with today. Paul, who's an early follower of Jesus, someone who made, I think, some of the biggest cases, if you want some good extra reading to do this week, read through the book of Romans, maybe, read through the book of Galatians, who made a huge point about this idea that it's like, you got to read this thing through the lens of Jesus. And Jesus did something where he just, he, he, the ending of Jesus changes everything else in the movie. Paul just made a huge deal of this. Here's what Paul said about the Bible. He said, there's nothing like the written Word of God for showing you the way to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So, okay, you, you want to learn? You want to know how to walk in the ways of Jesus? He would say, there's a lot of good ways to do that. We've talked about them here. Praying, spending time in church services, community groups, uh, praying to the Holy Spirit. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Huge ways to be able to do this. There's Reading this through the lens of Jesus, there's nothing like it. Because every part of Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful one way or another. Not useful as maybe an ethical moral guide, maybe not useful as a historical scientific guide, but it is so useful one way or another for this. Uh, last one there. Showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way through the Word, we are put together and shaped up for the task that God has for us. So here's what I would love for all of us to do, is I would love for you to read the Bible. And here's why I would love for you to read the Bible, is don't read the Bible so that you can follow the Bible because I don't want you to stone your kids. I don't want you to get 700 wives. Uh, I don't want you to think slavery is right, okay? I do want you to read the Bible, though, because I want you to follow Jesus. And I want you to read the Bible to let it show you something about what it would look like for you today to follow Jesus. Uh, and as we end, uh, we're going to get uh, pretty practical uh, about that. So, uh, Tim, Monica, if you want to come up. Uh, Ty, if you want to get ready to come up. We're going to um, ask Ty, because uh, she can read and I can barely read, uh, Ty to read us a story from the Old Testament before Jesus uh, in the Bible, uh, the story of uh, Noah and the ark. So maybe you've heard this story before. And it's a great story because it's, it's one of those stories that 
if you just like read it for like the full version of it, not just like the Sunday school flannel graph version. There's some parts about it that are like are a little bit disturbing. There's some parts about it that feel like historically, like, eh, is that really, you know? Uh, there's some parts about it scientifically where you're like, eh, I listen to this, and, and we're gonna take communion as we do this to remember what Jesus did for us. Read this story through the lens of Jesus. And let me give you this little historical tidbit as, uh, before Ty reads. Uh, what we know from looking at history, uh, real history, is that there's lots of different accounts of the flood. Different, not just the Israelite Jewish culture, but there's lots of different cultures that have a flood story. So that wasn't a new thing, the idea of people talking about a flood, which probably means there was some sort of a flood, we don't know exactly what it was, that happened at some point, because lots of different cultures wrote about it. And they all had different takes about what their gods did. So what we have recorded in the Bible, what Ty's going to read for you, isn't like necessarily a totally historical original piece from 5,000 years ago. This was a Jewish piece that was written, not for scientific or historical, but for a theological reason. They wanted us to tell us something as they were telling their version of the flood story that was different than what other cultures said. Last bit of historical piece before Ty reads. Uh, it's going to end with the story of the rainbow. You might have heard the rainbow before. Uh, they wouldn't have thought, when they said bow, they wouldn't have thought of like a bow, you know, bow, bow tie. You know, that. They would have thought of a bow like a bow and arrow. And one of the things that's interesting about this story is that everyone at that point would have heard a story of a flood and a god who has his arrow down, just, oh, these wicked, evil humans, I'm coming to get them. So listen to the story. And where in this story that they would have told for a theological reason 5,000 years ago, where is God's bow pointing at the end of the story? Ty uh, is going to read some background music at any point during this. You can take some time to take communion, to remember what Jesus did and what I believe he foreshadowed in great ways in this story 5,000 years ago. A new beginning. Noah's Ark from Genesis 6 through 9. Time passed and many people filled the earth. Everyone everywhere had forgotten about God and were only doing bad things all the time. God's heart was filled with pain when he saw what had happened to the world he loved. Everywhere was disease and death and destruction, all the things that God hates most. Now, Noah was God's friend, which was odd in those days because no one else was. Noah listened to God. He talked to God. He just loved being with God, like you do with your best friend. Noah, God said, things have gone wrong. People have filled my world with hate instead of love. They're destroying themselves and each other and my world. I must stop them. First, we'll build an ark. Do you know how to build an ark? Neither did Noah. Luckily, God knew, and he would show him. A storm is coming, God told Noah, but 
I will rescue you, I promise. I'll send the animals to you, ones that creep and crawl and slither and slime and gallop and hop and bound and climb. And don't forget to pack everyone's food. The storm was gonna wash away all the hate and the sadness and everything that had gone wrong and make the world clean again. God had thought up a way to keep Noah safe, but Noah would have to trust God and do exactly what God told him. So Noah built an ark, short for a very large boat. Noah's neighbors came out to watch and point and laugh because they didn't believe Noah about the boat or the storm or needing to be rescued. And Noah must have looked rather silly. His boat was in the desert. The desert was nowhere near the sea and there wasn't even a cloud in the sky. Why would anyone need an umbrella, let alone a boat? But Noah didn't mind so much what other people thought. He minded what God thought. So he just did what God told him to do. When the ark was ready, God said, all aboard. And Noah's family and all the animals climbed inside. Then God shut the door. And it started raining for minutes that joined up into hours, that joined up into days, that joined up into weeks and weeks. And the rain joined up into puddles, that joined up into rivers, that joined up into lakes, that joined up into a flood that covered the whole world. Their boat, that had once seemed so big, suddenly seemed very small. But in the middle of the huge storm, in the crashing waves, and all the thunder and lightning through it all, God was with them. And God kept them safe for 40 long days and 40 long nights. Finally, the rain stopped. The sun came out, and Noah threw open all the windows. Hooray, everyone shouted. Noah sent his dove out to explore, and it wasn't long before she brought him back to a, a fresh olive leaf. Everyone knew exactly what that meant. She had found a tree and land. The water was going down. At last, the boat landed quite suddenly on top of a great mountain. As soon as it was safe, God said, out you come. And so they did, everyone skipping and dancing into the dry land. The first thing Noah did was to thank God for rescuing them, just as he had promised. And the first thing God did was make another promise. I won't ever destroy the world again. And like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrow at the end of a great battle, God said, see, I've hung up my bow in the clouds. And there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again, but God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why. Before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan. A plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it. A plan to one day send his own son, the rescuer. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his war at his people, it was pointing up into the heart of heaven. <laughs>